And Megan. For an insider's look at the latest hot topics for musicians in the industry. We'll be interviewing composers, musicians, performers, and singers from around the world. All covering the music topics and answering the toughest questions you want to hear most about. This is is Experience Points. Points. Yay. Welcome to Experience Points with Megan and Greg. This is just Megan coming to you today without Greg. It's a bit of a special edition podcast idea that I had after talking recently a lot with colleagues and friends who are struggling to put together their music lessons very quickly online for the first time. So this is obviously a weird and frustrating time in our history, but I'm not here to complain about the plate that we've been handed. We're all music teachers, very smart, and we're uh, smart enough to know that we can still reach our students in a positive way. There's a lot of wisdom that I've gleaned over the years uh, doing online lessons myself, but I also have a good friend uh, that knows even more than I do about the subject. So I invited him on the podcast today to mutually discuss um, setup parameters, must-haves, and techniques so as to best help all of you with your studios going forward. My guest today is Mr. Alex Tate who is a resident and native of Oakland, California. He has his bachelor's degree in music theory and composition from Pepperdine University, where he emphasized in vocal performance with a minor emphasis in jazz piano. He spent four years teaching theory and conducting choirs at the Oakland School for the Arts, and he's currently singing with the San Francisco Opera Chorus in addition to the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. He teaches private piano and voice lessons and conducts the graduate-level choir at San Francisco Boys Choir. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to do this. Um, this was born out of an idea uh, that I had because I was kind of honestly uh, getting a little tired of answering 50 threads on Facebook and text messages from people that I know all over the world that are struggling right now with what platform to use for their online music lessons um, in addition to just knowing some basics uh, to help the student and to help themselves. And so mm-hmm. when I saw your post on Facebook that you were willing to help people, I was like, huh, I think that maybe we should do like a little podcast. Um, so thank you for coming. Uh, first thing going forward, um, there's a big debate right now between online platforms. So right now you and I are talking through Zoom which is a great platform to use. There's a lot of cool features about it, um, Mm -hmm. including screen sharing, including recording the lesson, uh, Mm -hmm. either by video or by audio. There's a lot of really other cool, crazy features because it was designed for businesses. Um, Mm -hmm. But what's your experience using FaceTime versus Skype versus Zoom versus Hangouts, whichever? Um, Well, they're they are all relatively the same in as far as the video quality and the the sort of like the delay between the between each other i haven't noticed a big difference in latency or in quality of video or clarity of sound between any of those um i've used zoom i've used skype i've used uh this app called signal um, which has a, a video chat feature as well. Uh, I haven't used FaceTime, but I don't see it being much different than any of the others. I've used Google Hangouts, um, and all of them I've, I've experienced very similar scenario between okay. them. So I, I, like to, I like to use the platform that the student is most comfortable with because for me it it doesn't create any real difference 
in, in how the yeah. lesson goes or how, um, how, you know, how, how we can, that it, it doesn't, there are no better or worse uh, obstacles to overcome depending okay. on the platform. It's, they're always the same obstacles, which is the latency and the um, inability to have sound and talk at the same time. So you can't create harmonies with your student and you can't accompany them at the same time. And that's true across the board. It doesn't matter the platform. And we'll get into ways to get around that and ways to remedy those issues in a, in a little bit, because um, that's a separate kind of uh, topic that I wanted to kind of cover. But before we get uh, past this subject, I wanted to ask you about um, how do you, for a, for a first time student that has never done this before, that doesn't have any clue literally what they're doing other than opening the app that they're mm -hmm. going to choose to do this lesson with you, um, what I, I know what I've told my students, but I, I wanted to also kind of hear your take on what you tell a first time student how to set up um, their device. Most students will initially go to their phone and only want to see the lesson you through their phone. So tell me, do you, is that okay, a phone versus a computer? I have had students from, for many different so I teach piano and I teach music theory and I teach songwriting and I teach voice. So mm -hmm. depending on what I'm focusing the lesson on, um, it will require a different setup for the student. If it's a voice student, they need to be able to stand um, without trying to hold on to anything. So mm -hmm. if that means they have to use a laptop and put it up on a table or a countertop and have the right angle so that I can see their their body moving when they sing. Then, uh, or if they have a a um, a pop cap or something on their phone that they can hang it on something, so that the phone is not you know uh, too low or propped up on a desk or something, where the angle is just of their chin. Mm -hmm. But the the more of their upper body I can clearly see, the better the voice lesson is going to be. If I'm teaching a piano lesson, um, I've typically had a, a really good experience with people using their phones and just setting up the phone on the uh, on the end of the piano, looking across the keys and showing a profile of the player and of the hands. Um, sometimes the student will set up some elaborate um, tripod thing and hanging on a chair or something like that and if I'm doing music theory then it doesn't matter they're sitting at a desk and they have paper and and pencil and their their phone is in their other hand or uh, propped up against the wall or something like that at their desk um, and and in all cases it's really useful for the student to have an earphone on uh, it's much more comfortable having wireless headphones but if you don't have wireless headphones being able to set up your system so that uh it's it's comfortable distance for me to see and still have the earphone cable reaching to the device mm -hmm. and also it tends to the audio tends to be a lot clearer and a lot more, uh, I guess, 360, if you will, but sort of that um, all-encompassing audio where you're not hearing random background noise sometimes, um, especially if you're in a, an apartment or a house or whatever, you've closed the door and you're going to hear some other noise, you know, um, to kind of distract the student. But um, yeah, I, I usually, I like to encourage them to use earphones because it cuts down on the feedback loop that they get because the device speaker and the device microphone are usually really close together, sometimes right next to each other, especially if you're talking about using a phone. So if I'm speaking to them while they're making any noise, the microphone flips on while the speaker's still pumping and I get this really crazy, you know, ghostly echo feedback thing and it's annoying yeah i agree and uh, using earphones eliminates that problem okay so i think we covered um some maybe some preferences for me like i 
I told, I have told my students uh, now going forward, um, I teach at one private studio one day a week and the rest of the time at Ohlone College. So for me, it's um, two different levels of students. Um, I'm teaching both voice and piano as well as some online like lecture-based courses, but that's not a big deal um, to go online with. But um, for me, it's, uh, I told my students, you know, the best way to be able to see me uh, as well as vice versa, how I'm seeing them is via computer. And uh, that can also mean an, an iPad, um, as long as it's not maybe, I mean, even an iPad mini is bigger than a phone. And so that's why, I mean, but it's just like you said, it's, it's kind of personal preference, it sounds like. You are okay with them using a phone, um, whereas I specifically, you know, I've had really bad um, instances in which my students have used phones and they've fallen, um, you know, because of the jiggling of the piano, you know, uh, or uh they've they haven't they haven't been uh useful in seeing me so if i'm demonstrating something you know it's sort of like uh i have to get up really close now and look at the phone versus yeah, for sure when i when i teach voice um i for sure prefer that the student use a, a laptop or something that has a, a large screen and can stand up on its own without having to be propped or or finagled or anything like that to to get a good angle typically um, laptops will sit on a desk and when you open it up the camera sits high enough that uh, you can get a good shot of the whole upper body when the student stands back yeah and they can I, still see clearly what you're doing on their screen because it's big enough just and also saying. too with a piano you know we I mean, some of the students will have half size pianos. Some of the students uh, might have full size, you know, and they might have electric pianos and they might have upright right. pianos. And so it's right. important for me when I'm teaching a piano lesson to be able to see a specific angle of the keyboard. Um, if the phone or the computer sits low enough it looks very homogenous. It looks like a one big white key and a one big mm -hmm. black key. So if mm -hmm. it's a slightly on profile, I think uh, you were talking about that earlier, not on this podcast, but earlier when we were talking, that if it's slightly a profile on either the left-hand side or the right-hand side um, of the piano, and that if it's up, yep, maybe six to 12 inches up on a table, or mm -hmm. on a chair or whatever, and then it's slightly uh, back a little bit, maybe a little bit behind uh, the edge of the, the piano. That right. tends to be the best sort of angle to view hands, specific keys, um, and be able to get a clear kind of picture of the instrument and uh, be able to tell your students exactly what is going. I, I, know, I know that many, I, I've been, listening to a lot of YouTube videos or watching a lot of YouTube videos of people who teach online and they have like this crazy setup where they have this webcam that's like right over their head, you know, and then one that's on the profile <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. That's, but people go all out, you know? Yeah. That, and I have, um, while I, I was teaching a piano lesson with a student and I have had to, uh, or I felt like I had to pick up my computer and like dangle it over the piano while I was playing with another hand to give a, a different angle of what my hand was doing. Um, but then yeah. I realized that's not really necessary. I can put my hand in front of the camera um, and mm. use like a, a notebook or a pencil or something to give them a sort of a, a reference of, of depth of, of finger position and just okay. show them how my fingers move in space and then put it back on the piano so they can see it in the profile and hear the the uh the way the instrument responds to that and it, it works out just fine so let's transition i don't want to make this too long for everybody but uh i wanted to talk about maybe some we talked a little bit about camera placement um <clears throat> doesn't matter what instrument you have making sure that 
when you turn on your video, and I would try this, by the way, before you go into a lesson, but as you turn on the video of the, de of the device and also the platform that you're using, that you position yourself as the teacher in a correct format. So talk yeah. a little bit about like, what should you, what are like the top three things maybe if you can narrow it down to how you set up your studio um, and maybe like what's behind you, uh, distractions, the room that you choose, all that. Um, so when I teach, I also like to make sure that I use a headphone with a microphone built into it. So I have a wired headphone set that has a microphone on it. And the cord is your average cord length. So it's not going to reach all the way across the room or anything like that. And I set up my laptop um, on the on the right hand side of my piano at the profile, um, basically right next to me, uh, as if uh, as if someone was sitting next to me while I was playing the piano. And I angle the camera towards the piano, just so that they get a not a, a direct right angle to my hands, so they can see a little bit of the uh, they get a little bit of depth perception on what the keys look like and what my hands look like on the keys. Um, and I pull the computer fairly close to me on the uh, while I'm sitting on the bench, so that one that my my earphone cable reaches to my computer, but also so that they have a nice, clear, clean, um, un unobstructed view of the keys and my hand on the keys. And I I put the camera in such a way that. Um, I am in part of the shot and the piano is in the other part of the shot. So I don't have to do any movement of the camera at all while I'm teaching. Um, and that's it. I, my piano is kind of wedged against a corner. So behind me is a, is my front door. Uh, and you know, some of the other music that's on top of my piano. I didn't really need to do anything as far as worry about background because it's just a door. Um, but if, uh, if your house is really cluttered or messy or has a bunch of stuff in the background, that might be something to consider picking an angle where you can maybe hang something behind you or something like that, unless you don't care about that stuff and, you know, let her rip <laughs> with whatever you've got. Um, I think that that's an important point though, especially with younger students. So if you have you know, kids mm -hmm. that are very easily distracted, mm -hmm. um, no matter the age, it could be any age really. Uh, but if you have a student that's easily distracted by what they're seeing behind you, um, or if you have a cat, like I have a cat and uh, sometimes I'm teaching piano lesson and my student is like, oh, cat, you know, and then like it takes yeah. five, 10 minutes for us to not be on the subject of his cat. And <laughs> mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that it's not pointed towards maybe a floor level. If, yeah. Uh, and then also making sure that you're, yeah, for those types of students that you're only really staring at the instrument. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's, you, you, you usually know about the student ahead of time, unless it's a brand new student, whether or not they're easily distracted. So that's definitely um, something that you want to keep in mind as you're setting up your angle or your shot. Um, the other thing that is really important is uh, how, how the lighting in the room will affect the visibility of what you're doing. So if there's mm -hmm. any light source coming from behind you, if you are between the camera and a light source, um, there's going to be a lot of uh, backlighting, which creates shadows on the camera screen itself, on the, on the camera lens, which makes it really hard to see things. So as much as possible, you want to eliminate any light behind you and accentuate any light behind the camera. So that mm -hmm. light comes from behind the camera onto what the camera is looking at. And that doesn't mean setting up a spotlight. I actually tried that. I tried uh, using a reading light and putting it over the, the computer and shining it on me. And it just, it created really, um, creepy, distracting shadows on the wall behind me. 
So I decided mm -hmm. that was not really worthwhile. But I opened all the curtains and, and got some sunlight into the room and made sure that the camera was between the windows and me so that mm -hmm. the natural light was coming across and the room and hitting me and the camera was getting my, get what it was seeing everything really clearly. Yeah, that's important. I was going to mention that too. I think um, just, I mean, it, obviously on a student end, uh, we'll take what we get, you know, I think, but yeah, on a teacher yeah. end, it is, I think you're right in, in the sense that lighting is, is key. And, and also, too, there's the sense that we're, we're remaining professional and we're actually thinking about those types of things. I think every little bit of attention to detail actually says a lot about you as a teacher. Yeah. Um, and it helps to keep the lesson focused and, and the student focused. For sure. Okay, so... Um, Let's start to go into the lesson itself and a couple of, uh, I'm just going to throw out a couple of different types of maybe scenarios or problems or concerns that mm -hmm. I've gone through that I know others have gone through. Um, the first one is uh, the myth or the thought as a teacher that has never taught online lessons that it is difficult or impossible to correct a technique in the student, an incorrect technique, um, or to show a new technique, whether it be posture, or whether it be fingering, or whether it be uh, not being able to touch that student and adjust the physicality of what they're doing. Um, how, would you, how would you address that, or how, how do you address that in lessons? One thing that uh, I, I'd find quite often is that a student will start playing or start singing something um, and make a mistake fairly early on in, in their attempt. And I have to find a clever way to get them to stop before they keep going in this, in this wrong trajectory or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and but the issue is that while they're making noise, their speaker is not gonna is not gonna catch what I'm saying to them. So I've often um, had to narrow my focus on what we work on um, together so that they can check in with me more regularly over what we're working on. Um, or I if so that's for a piano. If, you know, if they're doing a piano lesson, I say, okay, well, let's just work on this one measure or these two measures um, and only that and play that. And we'll, we'll go back and forth with just these little spot checks and then go through the whole thing and uh, work on it in larger chunks after we do some spot checking. Mm -hmm. If it's a, it's if, if it's a voice student, um, I often will tell them that, they're not going to hear me if I speak to them while they're singing. So we'll set up some visual cues um, while b before we start working. So sometimes it's I'll, I'll raise my hand or put my hand towards the camera uh, with my palm up to show them to stop or I'll hold up a finger or something like that, whatever they feel comfortable seeing. And then they know that I'm about to say something because it's, it's almost impossible to have both parties talking and be heard at the same time. Um, if it's a posture thing, as long as the camera is set up properly for the student to show enough of their body for you to see, there shouldn't be any issues. Um, and I, probably the more difficult thing would be for voice students, um, for the teacher to see what is going on with the articulators in the mouth um, mm -hmm. just because of, of video quality and the distance away from the camera. But that's easily solved just by telling the student to get closer, adjust the camera, maybe pull up a chair in front of the desk and, and sing closer to the camera so you can watch the articulators moving. Um, but I haven't had any issues with any of that personally. It's It's seemed to be a very natural transition. 
you actually just went through a, a handful of questions that sort of pertain to not only <laughs> curtailing, <laughs> curtailing like student behavior, um, but also going into um, leading a student through an exercise or a piece of repertoire that they're working on. So um, I'm sure we'll get more into that, I think, uh, with a couple of these other questions that I have, but, or, or, or just problems, I guess, uh, overall um, of teaching online. And the next one would be, I've heard a lot of uh, teachers that specifically try to engage their student not only in the repertoire that they're learning and that's fine and that's good and you have either a curriculum book for that or you sort of go freeform and just let you know choosing song choosing song here over here over here over here um but on the end of theory and musicianship how are you engaging with the student do you have online resources and tools that you use do you have charts do you have practice things that you're sending them as activities, what are you doing on that end? Um, so I have a, a small portable whiteboard that mm -hmm. I usually set up next to me. Um, and when I know I'm going to be teaching a theory lesson, uh, I find it a lot easier to um, show the things that I need to show if I use my phone instead of my computer. So uh, when I'm doing a theory lesson, I still, I still use my earphones. I use my earphone uh, every time. Um, but I'll use my phone instead so that I can move the camera around very easily and show them the whiteboard or show them the um, sheet music that I have up or show them an excerpt out of a book, uh, a music theory textbook that I have or anything like that. And I find it um, a lot smoother uh, to show those things. Cause in the phone, you can very quickly uh, flip the camera around to the front facing camera or to the rear camera so that you can show certain things like a director basically while you're yeah. teaching. So you can, yeah. you can flip the camera around and show the whiteboard while you're, you know, writing out some examples or zoom in on a, on a page or, or an example in a book. Um, and then flip it back around and so you can see the face and, you know, be more expressive that way. So when I'm teaching music theory, um, most of my resources are just here in the textbooks that I use in, in my brain and in the, uh, the whiteboard that I use to draw out examples with. I don't use a whole lot of online resources. Okay. Because I find oftentimes the resources that are online don't always say or do exactly what needs to be said or done to teach the student. And uh, more often than not, I'm able to come up with a way that is useful in the moment to address that specific question way faster than I can. Wait, hold on, let me go research this and try and find something in the moment. Yeah, yeah. I actually just recently found a couple of couple of cool things. One of them is a, a website that's offering um, free online trials right now through this entire thing. In fact, it says that it would be free as long as the schools are being closed uh, due to coronavirus. So I thought that was really nice. And especially since um, you can actually have your kids up to 300 students. I don't have that many, uh, log on for free under your account and be able to access different sets of uh, practice and assignments that relate to theory and musicianship. And oh, nice. so it's uh, the website for anybody that wants to go and, uh, and do that is Tone Savvy, T-O-N-E-S-A-V-V-Y.com tonesavvy.com and uh, it's free until it's not free <laughs> and then it's uh depending on what your student size or your student uh studio size is i should say um it can be as low as 19 dollars a month um so if you really liked it if you really wanted to continue using it um even for your live live lessons that would transfer back over to live lessons so um, but just as a resource for people, I just, I just learned about this and it's actually pretty cool. 
and it kind of works as a just an online checkpoint kind of thing during the week for your kids mm-hmm. um, it's hard to know if your student is going to completely 100% veg out because they're not seeing you face to face through all of this and the the atmosphere is a little bit lax you know they don't have school they're doing they're either doing homeschool or they're doing no school and um, you know so just providing another quick online resource where they can go and do little theory exercises but I agree with you in that if there's a new uh, theory skill that they need to learn they need to learn it first in the lesson for sure versus versus giving them oh hey go over and do this and they don't know anything you know what I mean it's not going to provide them the instruction that they need um if at all you know most of this is just sort of hey name the key signatures and name it's just get it's like a it's a way of practice Mm -hmm. um I have used a uh an online resource uh mainly for ear training and and dictation um, for my students called Teoria. Uh, and it's it's all free. Um, but I, I it sounds like it's much more limited uh, than what you were talking about with your okay. uh, tone savvy. But it's it's a free online um, resource for um, doing melodic and rhythmic dictation and uh, doing intervallic identification training. And um, they have a couple of other things on there. And they're really, really uh, well developed and um, fairly prolific in their, in their uh, library of, of examples and things to do. So I usually, if I'm doing a lesson with a student on music theory that gets to doing any sort of aural skills stuff, we'll jump on Tiaria together and I will sort of guide them through a couple of exercises um, with them and then instruct them to go home and work on this particular skill through the website on their own in between lessons. So that that would be an easy thing to screen share if you're using Zoom or if you're using any of the other elements too, using a screen share to go onto that website and poke around with them on that, some of the ear training stuff and some of the intervallic training stuff. Um, it would be And what's the website easy. you said? Teoria, T-E-O-R-I-A, I believe. Uh, last, last potential concern, at least, because uh, we've talked about a lot of different kind of facets so far. But um, sort of the last one that comes to my mind as a potential problem would be lecturing the student too much. In other words, the teacher is doing more talking than there should be. And sort of what's the balance? What's the right balance of shutting up and letting the student play or, you know, uh, do they exercise or whatever you want to say and planning too many curriculum points that you want to teach them in one half hour or one hour lesson? What would you say to that? Um, I, I would say that there, we have a certain responsibility to take the student as they come um, and to try and balance that with taking the student where they want to go. And so if you try and go into a lesson with too much of a plan ahead of time, usually winds up being that you have to discard most of that plan anyway because the student is not is missing a step somewhere or is not prepared to go that deep so soon or might even have surpassed what you had already planned on teaching them Mm -hmm. Um, so i always like to approach my lessons with a very um, student-led trajectory where when we start, there's always something that we start with, it, be it a, a warm-up exercise or a scale or a um, something very simple and, and skill-based 
That's not just, hey, jump into the song and let's do this because I got some things I want to teach you. It's more about let's check in of your progress from last week and see where the holes are. And, oh, there's these holes here. Great. I know how to fix those. I know I went through those problems myself when I was learning this song or learning this skill or learning this exercise. Um, and I find it way more useful for the student and way more fun for me because I'm sort of, you know, dodging and moving and thinking on my feet and, and keeping the, the lesson engaging because I'm addressing directly the need of the student as it arises in the moment. Um, so while I, I do have a, a sort of a trajectory idea of what I do with a student in a lesson, I rarely ever go into a lesson with a plan of my own mm -hmm. besides the goal of figuring out what the student needs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think the mo like when I first started to teach, there was this fear that I wasn't going to be prepared to fill the time mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, with just sitting, sitting here, I, I felt like a lump. You know, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> what am I doing? I'm just sitting down and I feel so useless. So I just wanted to give some encouragement to those who also feel that way right now going into um, teaching online lessons for the first time. Um, it's okay to go slow in a mm -hmm. lesson in this format. Um, it's also okay to not have, like you said, to not have a set goal, plan, agenda, whatever you want to call it, going into a, you know, with a student, even if you, even if you've known the student and you've taught them and you know exactly, you know, how they normally show up for lessons, how they normally run a lesson, you know what I mean? And what they normally sing during a lesson. Um, obviously you want to know your student's repertoire, but you, and what they're working on, and what their weaknesses and their um, their strengths are, but at the same time, not creating a set agenda per lesson um, will allow both of you to kind of feel your way into um, the ups and the downs of, of doing online lessons when you haven't been doing those, because it's new for the student as well. Um, yeah, and I, I find it very freeing um, to admit that you are learning with the student in this process because it it takes a lot of pressure off of us as the teacher that we don't this is new territory for us and even though we have even though we have the answers they're looking for in their skill we're not necessarily tech geniuses uh, we are musicians for for a reason we didn't get into tech because we were musicians so um i noticed that it's it's it seems to be very comforting for the students to hear you saying things like hey this is new for me we're going to explore this together i appreciate your patience you know things that that put them sort of that put you both on the same side of of the experience and it, mm. it creates a lot more um, sort of cohesiveness in the lesson too, because maybe they know a button or a, or a certain option that you didn't ever know was there. And they're like, hey, you know, you can flip this over and do this and press this button and magic, you know, exactly what you were looking for. So um, it, it's, it's not unlikely that the student will know more about these programs and screen sharing stuff than you do. And that's Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Kids are smart. They figure it out. Right. And um, especially, you know, they, they, they figure out, I, I, I went into it. I think my first, my first, it was a piano lesson, my first online lesson and uh, underestimating my student. Uh, mm. He at the time was still in, a beginning level book, maybe not like a primer book, but a beginning level book. And I was really afraid that I, this was not going to work out. <laughs> like their, uh, um, 
the reason why we chose an online format is because of distance. Um, he was not able to come to me and I wasn't able to come to him um, distance-wise. And uh, so we just decided, hey, let's just try this out. But yeah, I mean, I think going into it, it was, I was really afraid that he was going to miss like big chunks of curriculum and skill and technique because I wasn't going to be in the room with him. And it's, mm -hmm. it, what it does is it creates student self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how students will rise to that. Um, whether or not it's been present in the live lesson yet, um, it will eventually, maybe not right away, but like eventually um, hit the student at any age that this is, they, they need to be self-sufficient in yeah. what they're doing, right. you know? And they're either going to take it seriously or they're not going to take it seriously. And you're going to have some that are not. But uh, for the most part, students realize, especially right now, what we're all going through, mm -hmm. that there is no other option. <laughs> mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's, there is no other option to continuing your music lessons. Um, and so you just have to learn how to be independent um, and sometimes I'm not going to be there to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, but I, I think that that's actually a really cool metamorphosis that will eventually happen. Um, hopefully with everybody. Um, so lastly, I wanted to talk, uh, very briefly about the problem that specifically, uh, students who are playing instruments or who are singers that are uh, that require accompaniment to yeah. what they're doing piano accompaniment mm -hmm. specifically or instrumental um, obviously there's a delay you as a teacher cannot actively at the same time accompany the student the way you would in the lesson mm -hmm. um, what are some of the ways that you've gotten over that well the so because of, of that latency problem, I find that um, working in, in working on pieces in smaller chunks always works better and not trying to just sing through the whole song uh, with an accompaniment because there's, there's always moments or places in a piece of music that are... Uh, glossed over when you just mm -hmm. approach learning a song all the way through and that's no matter what your what your instrument is I mean, it's it whether it be voice or piano or bassoon whatever you don't learn an entire piece all at once in one chunk ever you shouldn't and if if as a teacher you're encouraging your students to do that I think you're doing them a disservice I feel like as a teacher, you need to be teaching them how to learn a piece of music, not teaching them the piece of music. And that means that you should be working with them on the tiny, small chunks and the small sections of the piece that are the most challenging or that are the most outside of their skill set and teaching them ways in which to overcome those challenges. And always in every lesson that I've ever taught, I wind up filling the entire time that in that whole hour with working in little sections, little chunks like that throughout the song and run out of time to try and play through the whole thing or sing through the whole thing with them. Um, unless that was part of the lesson to learn about breathing and phrasing and, you know, do the whole piece all the way through for endurance sake or for things like that. But that uh, those types of focuses are usually much more sporadic and, and much there's, there's usually much more need for that focused um, uh, hyper specific attention on a piece of music than 
doing the whole thing. And to that end, that means you don't have to accompany the student to, you know, uh, one phrase. They can do one phrase a cappella. That's not, that shouldn't be an issue. It, especially if they are already at the level in their instrument where they're playing along with accompaniment or performing along with an accompaniment, they're going to be able to do that section a cappella. And mm -hmm. if they can't, then they shouldn't be doing that piece in the first place. Yeah. I know that, that some of the people listening, you may be either a college uh, professor and teaching college level um, or graduate level voice um, and doing this for the first time as a teacher. Um, or you may be a teacher that it teaches, you know, ages 18 and down. Um, there's there's different types of things obviously that you can do with an 18 year old or a 16 year old in voice lessons and there are certain things that you can do technique wise um with a eight-year-old in voice lessons um specifically if you teach at a studio um that gives you the ages of those those kids for voice um mm -hmm. As a private teacher outside of the studio that I that I teach at on Mondays, um, I would not admit a eight-year-old in a private lesson. It's just the way that I teach voice specifically in my own studio. Um, and also to the price that I charge is a little high for uh, that level of student. But in scenarios in which I've taught at private uh, academies of music, uh, you don't get to choose <laughs> the age. Mm. And so it's kind of up to the discretion of who owns the studio to admit those types of ages to, um, to voice specifically. That's a really good point. Yeah. But that age of student, um, they just, they, the, the, the interest in taking voice um, is not going to be examining the larynx and talking about the components of your voice because they don't understand that yet but how on a video on a video format online how would you approach a lesson with an eight nine-year-old kid um whose normal mo is running through the song with you a few times mm -hmm. um well because of the latency issue uh i would not be able to be I, I would not be able to listen to them singing if I'm the source of the accompaniment. So what in, in, in the moment right now, what I would have to do if this were that lesson, I would have to find probably a YouTube video of maybe a, a karaoke type track for them. It's not ideal, but none of this really is. Um, and send it to them and have them play it and sing along to me uh, at the same time. So that then there's no delay, there's no latency issue. They're the source of all of the sound all at once. And then we can, we can sort of break that down in little chunks and um, I can probably, what I would probably have them do is, is pick maybe a, a, a certain timestamp to start at and pick maybe a small chunk of the song to, to go through. Um, several times to, to work out maybe some of those little specific issues um, or if it was just to run the song over and over again uh, it makes it so that there's no delay you, you eliminate that latency step by making them be the source of uh, where the sound comes from so mm -hmm. I, it, it would it would be I would probably just do a YouTube search real quick on whatever piece we were doing uh, as yeah. a karaoke track and there's almost invariably there's going to be one um it's true yeah text them or email them a link to that specific clip yeah um, and if and there's then, not you know there's i mean if you're not if the people that are that are listening are not a good enough uh pianist accompanist uh, i should say to record an accompaniment um you either should try at least by chord uh, chart, uh, or uh, you know, 
I don't know, hire somebody. I, I've, I don't know of the other sort of options because I am my own accompanist. You know what I mean? So I've never had to do that. Yeah. But um, yeah. So if if I were to if I was to assume that I was going to be the accompanist, then I would do what you just mentioned: is I would record myself playing their song all the way through, mm-hmm. and then I would send them that recording so yeah. that they could initiate uh, the playback and sing along to it and I hear everything coming through all at once. I think for the most part, those who teach voice can play. Uh, mm-hmm. Not maybe really, really well like a coach or um, a, an, an accompanist that would be hired for a musical theater show or something like that. But um, right. me, I derive my income actually from both things, but I'm kind of, I'm not a rarity, but I'm definitely not, you know, the norm. I, I, I think though that on a level of knowing your chords as a vocal teacher is helpful. Um, you can get a chord chart of a song for pretty much anything, not to mention there are pop symbols above a lot of the, um, the sheet music that runs out, especially like Disney sheet music and mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, small kids or even teenagers might be singing. Um, and then that will help you if you know how the song goes, just make up sort of a broken chord arrangement or a boom chink, boom chink, you know what I mean, kind of thing. And maybe on the right hand, be able to play the melody. And I think that just in the in within that, it is good enough. It is not supposed to be professional level, but it mm-hmm. is good enough to facilitate the idea that you're that you need to facilitate within a lesson. Um, you know, and if like you said, a karaoke track, you can find one that is the same key, the same cut the same tempo, all of that, then do it. You know what I mean? But sometimes, you know, you're picking a song or they've picked a song um, that needs to be adjusted in some way once they found, or once we've found, I should say for them, uh, a suitable karaoke track. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's like, oh, we've done a different key, you know, um, which is the common the common sort of thing that you're hearing is out of a karaoke track. Oh, well, I do it in this key, you know? And so it's best not to displace the student with that. And for right. me, I, it literally takes less than five minutes for me to run through the song and record it and then be able to send it to them. And it, it doesn't have to be professional. It can be with your phone. Yeah. Um, you know, it can be high tech with your computer and you have an electric piano and you're, or a MIDI controller and you're able to do it that way too. So like whatever works and doesn't cost you over an hour of time. Right. Yeah. Is the best scenario. Um, yeah. And if, if you have to, I mean, send your favorite accompanist, you know, the, the, the chart and say, Hey, what would you charge me to just do a, a quick one-time through recording of this chart at this tempo for my student playing the melody line and all that. Yeah. It's, um, I, I doubt an accompanist would charge you much. If anything, if they're a friend of yours, maybe they would just hook you up. Yeah. That'd be cool. Is there anything you wanted to like let or leave our, our listeners with um, one last piece of advice? Um, yeah, so I, I also, ha- I've done not only independent lessons, but I've led full-on rehearsals for the, the San Francisco Boys Chorus. Um, and we used the professional grade account th- uh, through Zoom platform, which is, it's beautiful for things like that, where you have lots of people um, that all have to participate and see the same things at the same time. Um, screen sharing is very smooth. Um, the video quality is very easy and it's really easy to control the other members, uh, the other participants in the, in the chat. You can mute everybody all at once with one click. You can select certain people to be muted or unmuted or, or videos on and off. And you can control that as the teacher, as the host of the room. Um, so I find it I found it really useful um, 
to use Zoom for those big group lesson or group uh, rehearsal type things. Um, and if you're going to be using any, any of these platforms to do a group lesson, it's really important that you've done more prep work than is typical for a rehearsal because you have to have all of your sources lined up ahead of time. You can't rummage around and do a YouTube search in the middle of the rehearsal. You have to have that screen pulled up. You have to have that tab ready to go. You have to have this musical excerpt already queued up. Um, so I've, I've found that it's, it's about twice as much prep time to run a rehearsal online than to run a rehearsal in real time. Um, and because of the latency issues and because of the, the um, distance issues, there's no way that you can expect to hear the choir singing as a choir. Um, so what I would do is I would find an excerpt of a piece that we're working on or find an excerpt of a solfege exercise or build a finale MIDI track of a certain sight reading thing and mute everybody and screen share my screen from what we're doing and tell everyone, okay, here's the example or here's the excerpt or here's the exercise. Sing along to yourself and I play it screen sharing from my computer. Then I uh, go through uh, each person individually and just sort of basically do kind of a rep check slash masterclass type of rehearsal where I listen to each of them one at a time, uh, singing that excerpt or singing that little section or, or doing something similar to that or asking each one individually, where did you have problems? How can we fix it? Here are some strategies. Here are some relationships or some intervals that you can listen for. And, you know, basically spot checking one at a time. It's time consuming and it's really tedious, but it is, uh, it, it is possible to run a full rehearsal online with, with a full choir or a group voice class. Yeah. And I, I know that there's some, there's some online uh, platforms that are um, specific to those types of, not only private lessons, but also large ensemble types of lessons and lectures and rehearsals. Um, and, you know, I, I know people that use those things and that pay for those things um, because they use them every single month. Um, you know, I, I think on a basic level of just trying to, let's try to get by for a couple of months. Hopefully it won't be more than a couple of months here for most of us that are used to teaching live lessons um, in person in the studio. Uh, but, you know, hopefully this, this little informational podcast um, will have enlightened some people of some things to think about to utilize in in their lessons going forward um and also maybe some encouragement <laughs> that we're you know we don't have to as teachers reinvent the wheel we're just using a different way to communicate um and it's not a bad thing and i think so many teachers that i've heard is like oh man this sucks or gosh, this is just too difficult. And sometimes there's a generation gap included with those comments of, you know, somebody your age, my age, we're practically the same age, but even people that are younger than us uh, and people in their 40s and 50s tend to take to uh, the internet and technology a little bit faster than somebody who has been teaching piano and voice and whatever in their house for many, many years or and above the age of 60. Um, technology is difficult for them to understand. And so um, taking one step at a time is, is the answer to that, I think. Um, and also asking hopefully a young adult to help you along the way with some of these online platforms but what would, what would you, can you add something to the, um, some of the older music teachers that are seasoned with tons of wisdom yet have never done an online uh, lesson before? Yeah. Um, 
I, I would, well, I, in fact, before we started this call, I just took a lesson with my voice teacher who is well into his seventies um, and was able to send me an invite to a, a Zoom meeting. And we did a, a lesson uh, through Zoom, just working on, you know, as, as I was talking about earlier, just working on little spot checks here and there. And I'm sure he didn't know how to do that himself. I'm sure he got someone that he knows how to communicate with easily and who is patient with him and he's patient with them, who knew about it to, to call him on the phone and walk him through it and jump in a chat room with him and, and experience the process um, to, to teach him really how to do it. And it's, it's, it can be daunting if you don't know how to use a specific platform. Like I didn't know how to use Zoom or Google Hangouts or Skype before I learned how to use them. So right. it's just going to be, it's, it's, it's okay to ask for help. And I'm certain one of your students knows more about it than you do and it, call them, be like, hey, how about uh, we just have a little instructional session, you teach me how to do this so you can still teach lessons, so you can, so you can still take lessons from me. Yep, absolutely. Well, with that, <laughs> hopefully we've provided some positive encouragement for everybody. Um, thank you so much, um, Alex, for coming on the podcast and doing this with me. Sure. Um, so that we can educate people and, and help people, um, especially during this time. So thank you. Yeah. Experience Point, the podcast can be found on all podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Anchor. Special thanks for the use of our theme music by composer Michael Gill from his album, Blues for Lazarus. If you'd like to follow the latest news about Experience Points and upcoming guests, please visit us on our Facebook page at Experience Points the Podcast.